He's truly the God that moves mountains, isn't he? I know some of you are just going to bust if you can't applaud God right now because of that last song. So do that. God is worthy of all your praise, all your honor, all the glory that you can give him. You would say that he moved a mountain in Washington, D.C. It's amazing, amazing. And, and the reality is Christians have a really hard time celebrating what they believe to be a, a godly action in the sense that it's such a divisive issue that no one wants to offend their friends, but yet inside they just want to bust loose and say, God, this is amazing. I still remember 1970s, I was just a child, but I remember early at that time watching the shock on the faces of people that I hung out with, adults that I knew, who were trying to make sense of what happened in the early 70s with Roe versus Wade. And the same shock appears across our nation right now with individuals trying to say, what happened? This is amazing. And some saying, what happened in an amazing bad way? And some saying, what happened in an amazing good way? And so though for those who are believers, they would look at it and say, the God of the Bible decided to move a mountain and took action. You're going to see an individual this morning in Genesis 12 who was not ashamed to praise God when he was in the midst of circumstances in which he knew people were watching him. Genesis chapter 12 is what we're going to get into this morning. I don't know if you got a chance to read Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11 this last week. We mentioned that last week. But there's clearly this line in which we've got all these ages of people listed. It's the line of genealogies that you find in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 that are just kind of like come across this. Why is that in there? One of the things you should notice, though, as you're reading through it is this rapid decline in lifespan. The age of people is not what it was prior to the flood. Prior to the flood, you've got generations of people living into their 900s, Methuselah, 969 years. But after the flood, there's this swift drop in the lifespan of humans. Let me just show you a quick contrast. Genesis 9.28 says this, Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Contrast that with this. Nahor, Genesis 11.24, that's Abraham's grandfather lived 29 years and became the father of Terah, and Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. So 148 years, that's closer to what we know as normal. It's not clearly where we're at. It's a really big change in the span of generations, from 900 and some years down to 148 years. But here's something that doesn't change. Whether humans live a very, very long time or have a short, what we think of as a normal lifespan, the behavior of humans is virtually the same. Post-flood or pre-flood doesn't seem to change. We've noted from the earliest pages of Genesis all the way up to what we examined this last week, we've seen humans fail God over and over and over. I just put together a little chart just to remind you of what we've looked at in the last couple of months. You'll see this on the screen. It says this uh, in, in chapter 3 that you find that 
the first man and the first woman, they disobeyed God, and God had to cast them out. But very quickly right after that, when sin entered the world, their son murders his brother. So Cain murders Abel. He lies to God to cover it up. In chapter 6, you find that the humanity becomes incredibly vile and violent, and God decides that he's got to purge the earth, and he's going to cleanse it with a flood. And so we come to chapters 9, and we find that God's regenerating the earth after he purges it with a flood. And then he blesses Noah, and he prospers him, and he scatters him, and he sends him out. But then the rebelliousness, as you saw in the last couple of weeks, it comes right back again. And they revisit the exact same actions, and they built their own tower, and they built their own religion, and they want to worship God in their own way, a God. So God has to once again intervene, and he stops the rebellion. That's what you found in chapter 11 last week. It's a recurring theme Deception, murder, rebellion, disobedience, total defiance of God. Does that sound like your generation? Right? It's, it's, in truth, it's every generation. That's why Scripture says we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible argues that individuals who live during these eras can't say they didn't know any better. Romans 1 makes that argument. Paul makes it brilliantly. Let me remind you of what he wrote here. Romans 1 verse 20, since the creation of the world, meaning since Adam walked this planet, since the creation of the world, His, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's what we saw last week. At Babel, you got individuals who reject God, and they replace God with a religion of their own making, and before long, the world is plunged right back into the exact same kind of rebellion and self-destruction. So question for you this morning. If you were God, what would you do with humans? Huh? Obliterate them? Annihilate them. Well, he did. The flood. All except eight people. And decided to start all over again. To give a brand new beginning. Even though God cleanses the earth, even though He purges it, they revert back to the exact same behavior. So after generations and generations and generations of people turning away, in Genesis 12, you find that God turns once again to one individual in a new generation, just like He did with Noah. And I don't want you to miss the aspect of what you're about to see here, because Abram is an amazing individual. He calls Abram forward to forge a new beginning, and don't miss this aspect of it. God invites Abram into this new relationship, just like he invited you into the relationship with him. Just like he called you, he invited Abram to be part of a relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 11 captures the imagery of this really well. Let me show you this verse on the screen. By faith, Abram, Abraham, when called, called just like you, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. 
By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. These details are really critical aspects to the story at the outset. Because other than Noah, to this point in time, God has been working among the entire human race. But there's an epic change in direction here. Without focusing on one specific ethnicity, God has been moving among the nations of the world. But now He zeroes in, moving forward, the ancient story of humanity in Genesis 12 makes this epic turn in a new direction on one group of people. And God is going to now bring forward His purposes through what the Bible refers to and what we call in our modern language a chosen people. So Abraham, like Noah, marks a return to God's original plan of blessing all of humanity, but he's going to do his blessing through a specific people line. So catch this, after millennia of people falling away and failing from God, we now find in Genesis 12, God's going to zero in on a specific group, the line who will come through Abram. And it's not because that line of people is so remarkable. It's not because they're so extraordinary from other humans, but rather for this reason, because God chose to work through them. Just like He chose you and works through you, God chose to do that, to set them apart to accomplish His will. And you'll find very quickly that Abram becomes Abraham. He gets a name change because God always changes the name to match the character. There's a new name waiting for you in eternity one day when you get to heaven. Did you know that? God knows you by a name that He set apart for you. No one else knows what it is, so don't come and ask me what your new name is going to be. I have no idea. Only God knows, and God has a name that matches your character, and He's going to give it to you when you get to eternity according to what Scripture says. But before we get to Abraham's name change, before we get to that detail, what should we know about this individual? Since we mentioned Terah, his dad, his grandfather, let's go back into that and pick it right up there. 11.26, Genesis 11.26 says, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. I don't know that it's saying that he had triplets. It appears like that to me. I couldn't find any other sources on it to support my position, so purely speculative. I think he might be part of a triplet family, but let's keep going. Let Genesis 11.27 now, now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in the Ur of the Chaldeans. So Abraham is a direct descendant of Noah, as we all are. But specifically, he's a direct descendant of Shem. He's not a descendant of Ham. He's not a descendant of Japheth. He's a descendant of Shem. And that's really important because through that line, God's going to bring about the Savior of the world. Jesus is going to come through that line. Remember, after scattering the people at Babel, people relocated into these different ethnicities, into these different groupings based on their language. Who could speak my language? That's who they stayed with. Eventually, the various tribes and the various languages formed their own geographic region. 
and they located themselves geographically in the groups where people would speak their language. Well, one particular group stayed in the region that we know as the Persian Gulf today, the, the southern part of Iraq. South of Babylon, there's this group of people in what's known as the Ur of the Chaldees. And that group of people spoke the same language, so they did life together and they built a society together. What the Bible refers to in the New Testament as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is just the Greek word for Chaldeans. The Chaldean people lived in this region that's south of Babylon, south of what we would call today Iraq at the area of the Persian Gulf where the Euphrates and the Tigris come together and, and dump. It's the fertile crescent. So Abraham, Abram, is raised as a city dweller, but he's referred to as a Hebrew. Why? Well, the word Eber, Ebro, Abr, it actually is an ancient word, and it comes from the phrase, the other side of the river, meaning he was called from the other side, the other side of the Euphrates, into the place that God would bring him to. So born in Babylonia, and this individual is the son of Terah, and Terah is a dealer in idol merchandise. He's an idol merchant. So catch this. According to what we're seeing in verse 28, Abram is a Chaldean, meaning Abraham was not born a Jew. Now that catches people by surprise. And the reality is he couldn't be because the Jews were not a people yet. He's the father of that race, of the group of people who were called apart. As a people, they didn't exist yet. He became that. So God called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees, out of this region that's devoted to worshiping the moon god, Nanar. Watch what Joshua reminds the people of Israel about as you look at this passage, Joshua 24.2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, there's that word, Eber, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Today, when you and I look back on the time of Moses and Joshua, we think of that as the ancient times. Joshua is saying this to the people of Israel, and he's saying, way back then in the ancient days, meaning way before he knew about anything because he hadn't walked the earth, he's saying back in those ancient days when Abraham was here, God did something remarkable. He called Abraham from the other side of the river from among the idol dwellers where they served other gods. See what Joshua is doing? He's reminding them, you're not all that. You're from a line of people who were idol worshipers. God's working through you, He chose you, but you didn't used to be all that, meaning this, Abram did not always know the true God. There was a time when he was not in relationship with God. That's true of us. There was a time when we did not know Jesus. There was a time when we did not know God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Abram did not know God, and he had done nothing to deserve knowing him, just like you and I. Graciously, God called him into the relationship. So along comes verse 1 of chapter 12, and it starts this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
Now, shortly, you're going to see that he didn't do everything perfectly, but he did respond quickly to God. This is one of seven direct communications with Abram. And God says to him, Abram, I want you to keep on walking until I tell you to stop. And I'll let you know when you get to the place that you're supposed to be. But until then, you just keep on going. What we saw in Hebrews a few minutes ago when we started this is that he obeyed. The word obeyed was used very specifically, meaning it was used in the present participle, meaning he did this at the same time God was calling him. God's calling him, and he didn't waste any time. He starts packing his suitcase. That's what the real word in New Testament times means to be obeying God. That's what it means in the Old Testament times. If you're obeying God, you're responding very quickly. Now, mind you, he doesn't know the way. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what sort of country it is. He doesn't know the quality of it. He doesn't know the quantity of it. All he knows is that God promises to lead him. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. It's really important to remember that Abram was raised in this culture that asserts that the gods to be worshipped are the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, ultimately, God's going to use that exact same imagery to show Abraham who he really is. But apparently, Abraham can't handle all of that information at once. He's too new to this relationship. So he's telling him, I just want you to go. But we're being reminded that he comes from this land of idol worshipers. His wife, Sarah, her name originally was Sarai. Sarai, in the ancient language of those people, it meant princess of the moon god. The individuals in his world who have names are named after the gods that they worshipped, small g, the moon, the sun, and the stars. It's not until you get into the line of the chosen people that you find Daniel, El, meaning God, Joshua, meaning Savior or salvation. But these names associated with these people at this period of time, they were dedicated to the God that they worshipped. But for now, God wants Abraham to know He's got his back, and he's going to prosper him like no one else. So verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. New Hope, did you know that that curse has never been removed and that promise has never been removed? You can read all the way through the Bible, and God's blessing and curses still follow the Jewish people. Those who come against Israel, they suffer the consequences. Those who bless Israel, they, they reap the rewards. And that promise that God made right there, it's never been removed, but keep going with me. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Question, can you see it today? Is the earth blessed because of the line of Abraham? We'd have to say absolutely yes, because we got Jesus out of that, right? And so we would say, okay, first and foremost, that's where Jesus came from. I get it. But as a people, are they blessed? Mark Twain's got a really interesting quote that follows up that insight about the blessing that God placed on the people of Israel, on the Jewish people. Let me show you this quote. If the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous, diff, dim puff of snokes. <laughs> okay. 
It suggests a nebulous, dim puff of smoke lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and learning are also way out of proportion, proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. That's a good insight, Samuel Clemens, alias Mark Twain. And he said that in 1897, not knowing the benefit that the world would reap throughout the 1900s and into the 2000s of the brilliance and the genius of the Jewish individuals. But he said they constitute 1% of the Earth's population. Now that we're almost 8 billion people on this planet, they constitute actually 0.2% of the Earth's population. Yet they are a power to be reckoned with on this planet. Know this, to date, no other nation ever, capital E, capital V, capital E, capital R, no nation ever went out of existence and then came roaring back onto the world stage except Israel. 1948, after thousands of years of being gone, Israel suddenly comes back on the scene. The scriptures speak to that. I don't know if you've ever read it before, but before Jesus walked this planet, let me show you a prophecy that Isaiah wrote. Isaiah 66, 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? He's asking that question because he's looking forward in time and saying, there's a time when they're going to go out of existence and then they're going to come back. Who's ever heard of something like that? And it happened in a moment, in just a blink. That's why Isaiah writes what he writes. But although they're living in disobedience to this day and they still reject Jesus, according to the Bible, they're still the people of God's choosing, but they need revival. They need Jesus. But it all began here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, it goes this way. So Abram went forth, and went forth means he walked. He did exactly what God called him to do. Abram went forth, he walked as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And I want you, if you have your Bible open right now, maybe underline or circle if you don't mind, departed from Haran. That's a really important phrase there. So we've got an individual who hears God's word, and he believes God's word, and it's absolutely remarkable considering his background. He's so well-established in life, and he's been raised with the idols, and yet he hears God, and he believes God. Now, add this detail to it. Abraham is secure. He's from a very well-funded family, and he lives in the Ur of the Chaldees. He doesn't have to leave. He could say back to God, you know... It's not a bad idea, but I would love to build up my retirement account a little bit more. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And, you know, maybe I'll get to that. My walk with Christ, my wife's walk with Christ, we know this as a married couple. We've learned this the hard way over the years. When God calls you, that is the moment that you respond. 
When God calls you into the relationship, when he calls you into the activity, that is when you're supposed to respond. So we read in Hebrews chapter 11, he's the guy who obeyed God, meaning he responded very quickly. And the Hebrew language presents it, I told you, in the present participle, meaning he took the action at that moment. But here's the caveat. He didn't respond fully. He didn't do exactly what God called him to do because he didn't leave his relatives behind. He brought them. Now, remember, this guy is 60 years old at this point. Let me just refresh your mind on this. Look with me on the screen one more time. Genesis 12:1. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. But he brought his relatives. Now, God's going from the lesser to the greater. It's not quite as hard to leave your country. If you're really patriotic and you want to stay in your country, that, that might be the draw for you. That's one deal. It's another deal to leave those you're associated with, your social circle, your relatives, those whom you do business with. But then to leave your father's house? What's going on here? Because he brought his relatives. Now, Nahor, his brother, seems to have been left behind, but he catches up with them when they get to Haran. But go with me to Genesis 11:31. Look at this. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out together from the Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, meaning the city of Haran, and they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Got a little map that we're going to put on the screen for you so you can appreciate the journey that took place. But from the Persian Gulf in the Ur of Chaldees, way down there in the bottom of the corner of the map, that's 300 miles all the way up to Haran. You may not think of that as a big deal today, but how about in the day when you had to walk? How about if you had to walk 300 miles to get to this place where you're intending to keep on going? So they travel to Haran 300 miles, and then he decides to park his Airstream trailer right there. And he does it for 15 years. So for 15 years, Terah, his dad, and the entire family come along with him. So instead of leaving his family behind, and I don't mean his wife, Sarah, he wasn't supposed to leave her. But instead of leaving them, he brings them along. With him is his father, and he's got Lot with him. That's why it's really important to notice that last part when I told you to pay attention to verse 4, when he departed from Haran for this reason. In your walk with God, I've discovered this in my walk with God, what you bring with you from the old way of life is highly probable to create problems for you. Terah kept him from fully obeying God for 15 years. Lot, he brought his whole set of issues with him as well. And so he's got problems because he didn't do what God said, and he brought that baggage with him. But he leaves Haran, and he takes his nephew Lot with him. And what you discover about Abram is as you study the life of Abram, you'll discover that he was often tempted to compromise. And it's kind of complicated, but occasionally he yielded to the compromise. So this is a guy who's not perfect, but I've discovered that the first steps of faith, 
They're not always giant steps. If new to the relationship, that's where Abram's at. He's new to the relationship with God. He's not taking giant steps. I'm sure if you're 10 years into your relationship with God or 20 years, you're looking back and saying, I've come a long way from where I was 20 years ago. Maybe you're only a year into it. And you're looking back and saying, I've learned a lot in the last year. I'm a much further along person than what I was a year ago. Well, Abram's right at the very beginning. He's not always taking these really good giant steps, which kind of helps us identify why he didn't fully obey God. But here's what's remarkable about him. He did trust God implicitly, not perfectly, but he's ready to respond. So he's got this large household and he begins this nomadic way of life and they're living in tents and there's no real luxuries. Remember, he's a city boy. And we have verse 5. Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, it appears they're really industrious. Obviously, God's blessing and they're prospering because he's got this huge entourage. So among Abraham's clan of his family and his servants, he's got over 300 people on the payroll at this point. This is a big group of individuals that you find that when you get to Genesis 14. And they've got to go now 400 miles from Haran to Shechem. Mind you, the only route that they can get there by takes them through deserts and over mountaintops. How long is that going to take you if you've got 300 plus individuals? Maybe they're making eight miles a day. They've got all their livestock. They've got all these people. They're all on Abraham's payroll. They're all saying, where are we going? And Abraham's responding, I don't know. He's going to tell us when we get there. That's a really big journey. Go with me to verse 6. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Moray. Now the Canaanite was in then in the land. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Pause right there for a second. This is it, Abram. This is what I told you about when you were back in the Ur of the Chaldees living in the Mesopotamian Valley. This is what I was promising to you. This is the land I'm going to give to you. Keep going. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, it's really interesting that Moses includes the phrase, and he just kind of threw it out there, that the Canaanite was living in the land at that time. You remember Noah's curse when his son mocked him when he was drunk. We discovered that last week. He didn't curse his son, Ham. He cursed the offspring, the descendants. And he said, Canaanite, Canaans will be cursed. We get this, not a throwaway phrase, this detail that's included by Moses in which he said the Canaanite was then in the land, the descendants of Canaan. And the Bible records they are a brutal, barbarian type people. And it does not paint them with anything other than a picture that their, their lifestyles looked on really, really dim. We'll get into that in detail in future weeks. But they're the descendants of Ham. Now keep that in your mind as you recognize that Abram's entering the country from the north side, and he comes into this region where these giant oak trees are at, this oak trees of Moray, and they're very common even to this day. They've got not only a tall tree, but it's got wide spreading branches, and people seek it out for its shade and its cover. Well, he's just coming out of the desert, 
And he sees a grove of oak trees and thinks this is a great place to build a camp. And God tells me, this is the land. I'm going to put up my altar here. Now, geographically, of all the lands on planet Earth at this period of time, this is the perfect place to serve as what the theologians call the cradle of revelation for an entire planet. Israel sits at the crossroads of the world's great ancient, ancient empires. I mean, if you've got Babylon and all of Asia to the east, and you've got Egypt to the south, and you've got what will be Rome to the north, and all the Mediterranean seaports to your west, this is the heart, this is the crossroads. But long before Rome ever comes on the scene, Abram is called out of the Ur of the Chaldees to receive God's promise before Moses, before Joshua, before Esther, before Jeremiah. God brings Abram to this place that we know today as the Holy Land before it's the Holy Land. And it's only holy because of the work that God's going to do through the people in this place. And ultimately, He's going to bring forth the Savior of the entire planet. So we come into the last verse we're going to look at today, and in verse 8 is that last verse, and it says this, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And I want you to bear down on that phrase to wrap this up this morning. He built an altar to the Lord by this action. Abram is putting on display his belief in God. This is an ancient way of echoing what Paul's going to say thousands of years later. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his way of saying to all of his pagan neighbors who are living brutally, violently against God. And all those people in his tribe, all those employees who work for him, all of his family watching the leader build an altar to say, this is for God. I'm not ashamed to worship God openly, even though his pagan neighbors are watching him. What are you this morning marked by that your neighbors can see in your life? And by that, I mean your coworkers, your social circle, your family members. What do they identify in your life that identifies you as a person who says, I'm not ashamed? Wherever you watch in the Scriptures as they account the life of Abraham, you can trace it. Wherever Abram goes in the land, he is marked by his tent and his altar. You can trace his steps by the altars that he leaves behind. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to go build an altar in your backyard. Okay? You've got a grill. You, you use your grill for cooking. That, that's not even what I'm referring to. You don't have to build something. It's actually your actions that are people are watching in your life. Can they identify by your actions that you actually belong to God? See, as you study the story of Abraham, what you find is his life is much bigger than just his life. Yes, God's going to bless him abundantly, and he's going to really prosper him, and he's going to become wealthier than he could have ever possibly imagined. 
But God is not dealing with him just in a personal capacity. He's dealing with him like he deals with you, with a view to the future ages. Who are you building into? Who's going to pick up that legacy that you're leaving behind? See, it's a character trait of God that he blesses us so that we would be a blessing to other people. So for Abram, stay with this thought. He built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. Remember this journey so far. It begins in the Ur of the Chaldees, the Persian Gulf region. And God did not give him explanations. He didn't lay out a blueprint and say, here's how I'm going to do it. And you get this detail and you get this information and this is what you're going to see happen. What God did is he gave him promises. And his promises sounded like, I will show you. I will make you. I will bless. So God promised to show him a land. God promised to make him a great nation. And he said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. A part of understanding this story as you come into this next section is that God called Abraham out of an area of civilization that was prosperous. The Ur of the Chaldees, that was the place to be. I hear a lot of individuals, especially younger people, who say, I can't wait. I want to get out of here and move to Grand Rapids because Grand Rapids is the place to be. The Ur of the Chaldees, it was the Grand Rapids of their time. Financially prosperous, lots of water, lots of pasture, lots of developments in society, lots of arts. That's where Abram finds himself. God called him from that to a place that was completely unknown. So I'm imagining that Abram likely had a pretty hard time imagining someplace better than the Ur of the Chaldees where he already is. And this is why the Bible says that this guy, he's a righteous dude. Because Abram believed God, and his belief was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible says that about you. You've not seen the land that you're going to. You've not seen the promise of God. But you believe, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe God's Word. You trust God's Word. And God calls you to a new and a better promised land. Last thing, these things that you study about Abram, none of this was based on Abraham's capacity to do this for himself. It was based completely on God's capacity. And God's capacity and Abraham's faith together, Abraham's faith in God's capacity, that same truth I can relate to. Because my faith, your faith should be in God's capacity. Meaning this, you and I, we're not saved today by making promises to God. We're saved because of God's promise to us. He's the one who made the commitment and said, I will do this for you. So you're saved by believing God's promise that he will provide a future for you, that he does have a promised land, that he's going to bring you to heaven one day. And he does that all because of Jesus Christ who would take away our sins. That's the truth of Scripture. So it's God who gave this covenant to Abram. And you notice as you went through it, the exact same thing was true that was true of Noah. It was one-sided. God said, this is what I'm going to do. Abraham simply had to respond with faith. And here comes the word, 
obedience. He had to obey what God called him to. That's what he calls us to do today. Eternally, if you're not yet in a relationship with Christ, you don't know God yet, you have an offer before you. It's the same offer that God has extended to every person in this auditorium, every person who's ever lived on this planet. How you respond to the offer determines your destiny, heaven or hell. And God puts it out there and says, I'm, I'm inviting you. I'm making the offer known. You just have to receive it and you have to act in obedience according to what I've called you to do. But for those who are here already believing, and I think that's probably the great majority who are in the auditorium, for those who are already believing, it comes from this perspective, how you personally respond to God's direction. That determines the significance of what He will do through your life. I found that to be true in my life. Abraham would have found that to be true if he had only stayed in the Ur of the Chaldees and never obeyed God, God wouldn't have been able to work through him. But because he did respond and he obeyed, God produced what is here today, and we have Jesus through that line. So you have the exact same opportunity. How you will respond to God's direction really does determine the significance of what he will do through your life. It's an issue of obedience. So we find Abram now in this place of God's direction. He's doing what God told him to do, and this is only the beginning. We get into the next part next week. Before I send you out the door, what I'd love to do is pronounce an Old Testament blessing over you in the same way that Moses blessed the chosen people, because you're God's people. You belong to Him through Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Would you stand where you're at right now? Let me just pray with you and bless you. Lord God, I thank you for every auditorium that has Bible-believing Christians in it right now across this nation. But I especially thank you for this auditorium right now and those who are watching online that are part of New Hope Church, that you've called us here specifically for this day, for this moment in time, to hear your word. And now our responsibility is to respond to your word. Father, I pray that in the same way that Moses raised his hand over the children of Israel and in my raising of my hand over these people, that you would indeed put your blessing upon every person who's here. May you, Father, cause your countenance to shine upon us. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us and keep us. May you cause your face to shine upon us and give us your peace and send us out as your warriors into a world and your witnesses into a world of individuals who are confused and don't understand who you are and don't have a relationship. Use us in the way that you used Abram, that we will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we will speak into the lives of others and bless us for our obedience to you. Father, I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Again, if you need somebody to pray with you this morning, the prayer room is open and they'd be happy to do that. I'll be here in the front. If we haven't met yet, love to engage with you. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.